0: Welcome to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon. This will be a fun show. We've got former Major League outfielder Doug Glanville on to talk about the intricacies of outfield defense as it relates to the Dodgers and Rays, along with a fun take on a popular breakfast food. Then we talk World Series stats to watch with Eno Saris of The Athletic, breaking down some of the key players and the key numbers. Let's get to it. I have always wanted to do this. We welcome in the center fielder, Doug Glanville, (laughs) to the podcast. Now with ESPN, The Athletic, UConn, New York Times, you can find them just about anywhere in the media landscape. He is the perfect guest to come on a podcast that often talks about defense because he was a very good center fielder during his playing days, and he loves talking about defense and defensive stats. So let's start with the Rays. What has impressed you the most with the Rays defense?
1: Wow, I mean, you know, they um, when you look at the Astros series, for for starters, how hard the Astros were hitting the ball, right? They they were just smoking the ball early on, and yet they were everywhere. The Rays just seemed to be not only well positioned, but to be able to stop a ball hit that hard is a another kind of skill set. It's one thing they had to have a pitcher giving you kind of weak contact all the time; it's easy to convert those. But when you're dealing with hard hit balls consistently, where you don't have a lot of time. They did exceptional job at that. So even being in the right position is one thing, but I was impressed on how they closed out plays that were not really easily hit balls. And so their positioning was just sort of accentuated by the fact that they could convert tough plays into outs.
0: Now, I think with the Dodgers, it, there's, there's one person or two people uh, that I think you kind of gravitate to with with their defensive performance. What impressed you the most about them?
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's one of those things that it's kind of subtle because they're such an offensive team, and you know about their pitching, but then you find out their their defense is you know top three in in baseball. Certainly, defensive run saves underscores that. The single organism mentality is so key, especially in this day and age where you're thinking analytically. You're thinking about position, but you also have to kind of move in in, in a synchronous way. Uh, so you look at Mookie Betts, for example, who's a game-changing defensive right fielder, and his ability not only to make the play, be in the right spot, and understand spacing with his you know center fielder with Bellinger and others, he also is so uh, incredibly skilled at the wall. Uh, and these are the kind of things that you know you understand that. That's a big play because if he misses it, either A, it's a home run or it's absolutely extra base hits. But it takes a different skill to be able to time it right, be in position, read the wall, and if necessary, be ready to throw. Uh, Those big defensive plays, they're almost like hitting that three-run home run when you're down by two runs. So I was impressed at the big playmaking on the defensive side of the ball and how well universally their team defensively works in sync uh, it's not just a sort of group of goal glovers or stars. They pick up where there's weakness, they rotate accordingly, and, and they have enough game-changing defenders to really make an impact on on the defensive side of the ball.
0: I want to hone in on on two things here. They kind of tie together. One is the home run robbery aspect. Bellinger had the one against Tatis in the division series. Mookie had the one against Freddie Freeman the other night. As someone who has gone back to make a play at the wall, can you take us through what that's
1: like? I'll tell you, it always comes back to Jimmy Pearsall. That was my outfield coach. And we were like oil and water when it started, when I got drafted in 91. He was always yelling at me. It was tough. But I'll tell you what, he ended up being one of the best coaches I ever had because he really understood defense down to the granular level. He wanted you to get jumps. He wanted you to be reading plays. He wanted you to study. Every play he broke down, even down to training you, uh, when a guy hit one off the end of the bat or got jammed, he would do a fungo drill with that, jamming himself intentionally, making sure that you use your ears as well as your eyes. Uh, really incredible. So when it came to outfield at the wall, it was called ball, wall, ball. And I say it, you know, a million times for ESPN, but but really that was the training mechanism coming up in the minor leagues. You pick up the ball, you find the wall, you pick up the ball. And you notice that sometimes there's outfielders that are kind of afraid to take their eye off the ball because they, th- they think they'll lose it. So you end up running in a position where you're looking back and you're slowing yourself down. So you actually lose steps. Because as you can imagine, when you turn in the direction that you're heading and you're running that way, you're much faster than when you're looking over your shoulder. So he taught us that outfield play has a lot to do with almost like ballistics. You have to know off the crack of the bat, in the conditions generally where the ball is going to fall. And you should be able to pretty much run there and be fairly close when you get there without even looking. Uh, now, with the wall, the, the, the eye contact is made because you really can gauge your timing. You give that little quick peek, but then you kind of find the ball again. And, and once again, if you're precise with where you're running, when you look up, you should be in, in a range where the ball is. Now, to do that when you're risking hard contact, at full speed, and to coordinate the timing of a jump, that's where you now add all these other elements. And I'm not a big fan of the warning track because it didn't really help me very much in terms of by the time you're running and trying to count your steps to the wall, it's going to depend on the angle at which you're approaching the wall. It's going to tend on your speed. Not all warning tracks are the same and so on. Uh, but there's going to be some point where you know, okay, I'm looking at the wall. I go back to the ball. Now I got to get my timing. And That is where it gets tough because if you're on a backhand side where you have to open your glove a little bit more because of the smaller pocket rotation or you have to go on the glove side, all that plays a role. You're going to know if it's a half wall in Boston or whether it's the the monster, right? So uh, I was really impressed with not only the fact that they knew how to make the play from a fundamental standpoint, uh, but they had the athleticism and the timing to really close out turning that fundamental into something exceptional. And uh, time and time again, Mookie Betts keeps doing it. So uh, this guy is really, uh, really gifted when it comes to wall play.
0: I actually remember, and this is maybe four or five years ago, that you and I had a conversation uh, about how he hadn't even necessarily fully picked up how to play the outfield yet, because he played infield coming up. Uh, How has he improved his game uh, over time?
1: Well, I'll tell you what. We I remember that conversation because I was doing quite a few games for Wednesday night baseball, and we did a lot of Boston. And I watched him early on, as you know. Keep in mind, he was a second baseman in the minor. Now he's very good second baseman, but it was new territory to go into the outfield and be thrown into right field. That's different angles. Uh, that's not easy. And he seamlessly transitioned. But early on, uh, the one thing I remember us talking about was his steps. You could always tell the confidence of the outfielder and their precision by the, the micro adjustments they make in route to the ball. And when I say that, think about driving. You're in your car, you're going from to the grocery store, you get on the highway and as you're driving, you're constantly doing those little small adjustments with your steering wheel to kind of make sure you're going right. Now there's the adjustments that you make in steering for the most part, you're staying in lanes, you have markings, you have guide because the, the directionality is important, right? Because obviously you'd be in the wrong lane and you have to watch your speed and obstacles and all these other things. Well, outfield play is very similar. You're making these micro adjustments. The outfielders that are not quite comfortable are making fairly big adjustments in route. So their steps, uh, if you kind of it, it would be a little bit zigzaggy, right? It's oscillating in some ways. And each time you get off of that straight line path, you're losing ground, you're losing uh, steps, you're losing spacing, and that could be the difference between hitting the tip of your glove and closing out of play. And I noticed early on with Betts, he was constantly adjusting to the point where you could tell it's almost like you're not confident that the steps you're taking are taking you in the right direction, so you keep making these small adjustments, and and that costs you time. While watching Betts now, you don't really see that very much at all. He's, I mean, he was still an exceptional outfielder even with these – micro adjustments he was still making the plays but he now just has that confidence to go I'm going here I'm going to get to my spot I'm going to adjust off of it and he has the speed to get there quickly and he has the athleticism and and sort of instincts to be able to put himself in the right position to finish the play uh, and so that's what's really impressed me he already had a great arm and, and all these skills but he's started to really uh, hone in there's one other thing I want to mention about bets. Is we did a game in Boston against the Giants interleague play. I was in the right field stands. I uh, had a monitor, and they had a camera on my my uh, monitor where I could see the all the outfielders at all times, or we could. So there was a ball hit to center field. Jackie Bradley goes back. Bets sort of looks at it. It hits sort of that corner edge, and then ricochets towards right center. And Bets hadn't moved because you know it, he didn't quite have the the instincts yet of the outfield that every ball hit, even to left field, you got to be somewhere at full speed and a ball hits the center with the pinball machine. That's Fenway. You got to be running at full speed because if it h- takes a crazy angle, your center field falls down, overplays it. You have to be there. And he got caught in that spectator mode. You can get caught on. And so I, wa- and we ended up slowing down the video on the replay. And I think who hit it was like someone really slow was a catcher. And you could tell the, Time he took to realize he should back up was a time he turned that double into a triple. And that's that was just something that early on he, he was doing periodically, mostly unintentionally, right? He's just spectating, which you can get caught up in in right field. And then he realized slowly over time that he has to be dynamic and actively involved on every pitch and every play. And he's such a great athlete that he needs to. He could back up a play over a uh, pickoff play on first base and throw the guy out at third. That's how much of an impact he can make. And now he's really showing that to his full ability.
0: And he's been fantastic uh, this postseason with another conversation. I remember us having is you talking about the differences between playing left field and right field. And I want to address that specific to Manny Margot, Manuel Margot and the catch that he made going to the right field, the foul line, and then toppling over the stands uh, while hanging on to a foul ball. What goes into that one?
1: Fearless ignorance. I mean, you have to really like, I mean, I'm telling you, man, that, uh, that play was just brave. You know, well, I'll tell you what goes into that. You're First of all, you're going to the line and you should have scouted it out pretty well. Now, Margot, uh, this was in San Diego, wasn't it? So he, yep. knew, he knew the field very well. Uh, so that helps, uh, although he probably played center field mostly. Yep. But, you know, going to a line anywhere, Wrigley, whatever, you know that wall is, per- is coming. So you have a similar ball, wall, ball element to it. However, down the line, you're getting more of that nasty slice, right? It's, it's every step you're taking, the ball seems to be running away from you, especially hooking into the stance. So you have some of those elements uh, that could really play. You might have wind, all these other effects that can, can get you more dramatically with all the spin on balls that are sharply down the line. So he's navigating running after a ball that's running away from you As the wall is closing in on you, then not only worried about the contact, but at certain wall heights, if you jump to elevate, to make the play, you're going to get undercut and you're going to get knocked over and that could possibly flip you. Uh, So you're always thinking, okay, well, I need to use my hand, my other arm, maybe to keep myself safe. But he just jumped full out glove, didn't really even think about trying to hold himself on the wall and just pretty much accepted at a certain point that he's going to flip over the wall. And then, you know, there's some cement back there. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so I I just think that was pretty wild. Uh, I, I don't know if he scripted it exact that way to jump at that point, but his timing worked out well. And just to hold on to it, knowing that you're going to pay the price was uh, really a lot of courage because that, that, that can go really badly. And I've seen, you know, many people get hurt running into walls or flipping over fences. So to his credit, he held on to the ball and, and, and made a great play. Some people
0: would say that moving from center to right or left is fairly simple, but I've heard you say in the past that that's not necessarily the case. Uh, so I'm curious for your take on that uh, for a center fielder moving to a corner spot.
1: Well, it's interesting because my, my era, what was different is a couple of things like one, if I was a center fielder, it was about speed. And, you know, you get to your spot, you can compensate for mistakes very well because your speed can make up for them. mistakes as in pitcher mistakes. So you had this sort of bandwidth to roam everywhere, right? You go and you set up in your sort your of comfort zone. You know exactly who's playing, you know, at your corner positions and you cover all the ground you literally can cover, physically can cover. And, and so I think what's shifted a little bit is the analytics has made it, uh, and look, this has always been part of the game, but the way it's implemented is what's different. Uh, and I'll give you an example. I, I talked to Albert amora Jr. in spring training this year. I did an interview with him, and we were doing, it was a demo interview, so I was throwing balls at him, ball, wall, ball, all this stuff. So I remember telling him about jumps and asking him, really. And I went into this poetic discussion about Jimmy Pearsall and how he taught, him, taught me about jumps. He's like, oh, okay, you do this, you have to be in motion, Anytime a ball is coming through the zone, you should be taking three, four steps and headed that direction. Uh, so I got trained on this idea that I was always in motion leading into momentum. And I had to anticipate based on the hitter, the pitcher, the execution, the location, the count, all these things to know that I'm literally taking three steps before the guy even makes contact. That's that's That was a jump back then. So I go into this thing and I say, okay, Albert, so what do you do to get these jumps? And he says, I don't know because you know what? We're already there. <laughs> so that's what he said. They're already there. And I kinda I really like was almost crestfallen thinking about how they're positioned to where the ball's going to be. And and when their their positioning is a little off, that's when you're actually running. <laughs> so so it was really mind blowing. So when you think about left field and right field, take you back to sort of quote my day, when I moved. They knew that I was a center fielder in left fielder's clothing kind of thing. But I had to deal with a new angles that I hadn't really dealt with at center because center would speed. Most of it's, it's a it's a true vision to home plate. You can see, and, you know, you generally don't get the nasty bites that you get in the corners when someone hooks a knuckleball at you in the left field corner. A lot of hooking, a lot of diving, a lot of balls that are right on top of you. You're closer to home plate. I mean, you're dealing with the side wall and the back wall. I mean, so I found left field to be really difficult because you had a lot of righties, a lot more right-handed hitters hitting hard balls at your way that were dipping and diving. And and so now with the uh, more analytic focus, you're covering more territory simply by positioning. And so it takes a little bit away from the necessity to compensate with speed as much, which is why I think you can focus on offense for seven innings, and then say, hey, "All right, we'll worry about defense in the lat- latter part of the game." Uh, that was, of course, bad for my career, <laughs> but uh, understandable on on how they started to rethink and, and reconsider how outfield is, is played.
0: All right, last question for Doug Glanville, who's filled us in on how to play the uh, outfield in a number of different ways as it relates to this World Series. We're going to go a little different uh, path here. This is something that uh, I happen to know about Doug. And in the past, we've done a couple of things on this show where we've brought someone on to talk about sabermetrics not necessarily related to baseball. We had a comedian come on and we talked to her about stand-up comedy and the sabermetrics of jokes. With Doug, we've got something kind of cool we got the sabermetrics of breakfast food, and in particular, one piece of breakfast food that I know he particularly likes. Just to round this discussion out, uh, give us a little take on the sabermetrics of French toast.
1: Ah, I tell you, yes, French toast has been glorious in my life. Well, it started way back in uh, the, the youth when my mom got frozen French toast. It was pre-made, and eventually she's like, all right, I could probably make this. I'm buying all this frozen food. Let me make it so she made it but she made French toast without eggs because eggs you know was pricey at a certain point of going through all these eggs and I was eating French toast like water. So she decided that I needed to uh learn how to make it myself but would make it without eggs. Now my roommate in college when I first made French toast for him and on a Saturday he was horrified that I didn't use eggs. So eventually I brought eggs back in to cut into the nonstick. So whenever I, because of my love for breakfast growing up, which included Southern breakfast, like grits and bacon and whatever, I uh, paid close attention on the road wherever I played to make sure I found all the great breakfast places. And this started the day I became a professional in the minor leagues. I found truck stops in Erie, Pennsylvania. It didn't matter. I didn't care. Nashville, Tennessee, that was Waffle Houses in Georgia and Tennessee or whatever. So I started to pay attention Uh, more and more to the best breakfast places. And I started to look forward to my trips to going to these great spots. And I continue that in the major leagues. Uh, So I started to create my own standards and French toast was one of it. Ironically, after all those years of playing, the uh, best French toast I had, and maybe it was because of the date I was on, was with my wife before she was my wife. Uh, We went to a place, Morning Glory in Philadelphia. And, they use like a nutmeg thing going on, and it was wow! It was incredible. I was like, wow, this is the best French toast I've had, uh, next to my own, of course. So, so maybe it's maybe it's the company you keep, but the ingredients are are critical. Uh, I'm open to a lot of things. I'll take you know challah bread, Texas toast. <laughs> I mean, I, I get deep. So I am a, I am equal opportunity French toast connoisseur. And uh, there's, some, there's some great places out there in the United States and, and through Major League Baseball cities. And I'm sure I've tried it in Canada and Puerto Rico too. So it is the key. And I was one of the few players that woke up early enough to eat breakfast. Most people slept in, missed breakfast hours. I would always... Get up just in time to make it for breakfast.
0: So nut- nutmeg and ca- the company you keep is like the added, is like the defensive positioning of French toast. <laughs> right. better, right? Yes.
1: Well, analytically, yes. Yeah. So we have to think about, uh, well, you think about the area covered, egg area, egg surface area. Uh, that could be <laughs> analytics to so break down. Uh, how you powder the sugar uh, and put it in the milk. Uh, then you have to flip it just right. So the surface area, you can't keep it in too long, just like you can't keep a pitcher in too long because then the bread gets soggy. So you got to flip it very quickly. It's sort of lightly. Uh, Then of course, when you cook it, you got to make sure you don't like overcook it and burn it. Uh, My mom, once in a while, if it didn't cook well, would flip the burn side down so that when you ate it, like, oh, this looks good. But the other side was burnt. So uh, you got to learn these tricks. So yeah, that surface area is still the temperature setting very important stadium effect depending on what kitchen you're in because you know you get the wrong kitchen you use gas grill versus you know stove gas stove versus electric you know there's different planets you got to know where you are the chef absolutely Uh, i'm kind of ambidextrous so i can do kind of a little left-handed thing when i need to close the deal out and uh, of course it comes down to the ingredients too we gotta it's uh but it's still not the ingredients alone it's all about how you put them together. And that's where the analytics comes into play.
0: Nice. World Series analysis and French post analysis from Doug Glanville. Thank you, sir. We appreciate the time. Enjoy the World Series. You can catch Doug on ESPN in The Athletic uh, all over the place. Uh, certainly keep up with him during the World Series. Thanks for joining us.
1: All right, Mark. Thanks, man. The
0: 2021 edition of the Bill James Handbook is available for order from ActaSports.com. This year's book features lots of great insights. Bill invented a new stat to measure game score for batters. We look at the impact of the rule changes made in the shortened season, and the weird stats that a short year creates. Speaking of stats, we've got lots of them. Career and year-by-year totals for every major leaguer, plus deep dives into defensive runs saved, RBI percentages, shifts, the Hall of Fame, and more. Plus, the first set of hitter and pitcher projections for the 2021 season. That's the Bill James Handbook 2021 edition, available at actosports.com, where you can get 10% off and free shipping. Order today. Eno Saris is a baseball analytics writer at The Athletic. He's previously written for Fangraphs, ESPN, Fox, MLB.com, SB Nation, and many others. He's been on with us once before. Wanted to bring him on again because he's written a bunch about the Rays this month. Uh, So first of all, a very broad brushstrokes question for you to start. Your take on the state of the Rays entering the World Series.
2: The playoffs were structured in a way that played to their strengths so far, and that's about to change. The lack of off days made the postseason more like the regular season. And the Rays, like the A's before, have built teams that can win a lot in the regular season when depth matters the most. I think the Rays, like the A's, and now the Dodgers... Build really good teams all the way down so that their 20th through 28th person on their roster is better than your 20th through 28th person. That means they'll win on getaway day. They'll win those bullpen days. They'll win when you're resting your star um, and your backups aren't as, as good as their backups. You know, So that's how they kind of advanced through the regular season and the postseason not having rest days, made it more like that. But now they run up another against another deep team at a time when there are going to be suddenly off days that help the Dodgers patch up some of those holes in that bullpen. And so I think they, the advantage has now flipped on the Rays and uh, they're the underdog in the series.
0: And what is your take on the state of the Dodgers?
2: I think they're, they're going to love having those off days. Uh, they're going to love uh, being able to kind of really focus in on just the three or four relievers they trust the most. They had to use a little bit more of their bullets to get here, and they'll have the benefit of one less day of rest. And that those two things will probably matter on some level. Uh, but if you're telling me, like, you know, depth against depth, uh in this situation, I don't think that the the Dodgers are that far off uh, the rays and I think they can hang with them.
0: And you're gonna take, I guess, the depth the depth with money uh as opposed
2: yes. to the depth on a budget. Depth death with stars. <laughs> <laughs> death with stars works a little bit better than just death by itself. So I'd say something like the Dodgers and Six. Two teams built for depth, I think, will somehow get the long series they want, you know? (laughs) Yeah.
0: All right. So is is there one stat for the Rays that you feel will be particularly important in this series? Not a basic thing like, you know, such and such as home run total, but something a little bit more advanced.
2: Well, I don't know if this will tickle your itch, but just batter strikeout rate, you know, batter strikeout rate. I looked at it. It's more important in the postseason than it is in the regular season. I think that we've seen a little bit from Ben Lindbergh on how uh, batters, uh, teams with better contact rates, can do a little bit better against high velocity. We know that the postseason has more velocity than the regular season, and I saw that this year, batter strikeout rate has predicted every series except for the ones the Rays won. So that seems meaningful to me that there's this, we we all acknowledge that the Rays have trouble scoring runs sometimes, and that's because they have trouble scoring, you know, stringing some hits together. If they can win on the big blast, that's fine. But, uh, you know, strikeout, battle strikeout rate says the Dodgers should win this one.
0: All right. And um, if you're going to pick a player stat, I know that you've looked at a few players in depth recently, Rosarena and others. Uh, Is there a player stat that you think is particularly important?
2: Well, I just I'm looking at a couple players and Willie Adamas and Brandon Lau that were important offensively to this team and are streaky. Here comes a strikeout rate comment again, uh, but also showed some signs of life late in the Astros series. You know, they you know, they have these little flame emojis on the baseball savant page when you when you have a hard hit and it's in the box score. It's nice to see that because you're just like, oh, that's I can quickly now see Brandon Lau had two hard hits in this game. And you, and you saw the, those flame emojis without the results in the Astros series. So I, 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 if the Rays win this one, I think Brandon Lau and Willie Adamas are resuscitated.
0: Going back to what you were talking about before with the, the strikeout rate, one thing that we have seen a lot of in this postseason are high fastballs. Uh, high fastballs at 97, 98, 99 miles per hour. And it would seem that, that the Dodgers have guys who can lay off of those. As as you were talking about, is there something with uh, high fastballs that we should be paying attention to in this series?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's fair to wonder uh, with some of these trends when the tipping point is we're seeing like higher velocity in the postseason every season, except this year, we're basically tied with last season. And I think at some point, you know, the average for forcing fastball right now is ninety four nine in this postseason can it be much higher <laughs> you know? um, and can it be much higher without, without losing all the command and all the stuff that comes along with it? So there is a one person allegory that I think is important here. So we talk about high fastballs, high fastballs, high fastballs. Well, Randy or can hit the high fastball. And the one thing he has is a, is a flat swing that you know doesn't have that sort of upward angle to it, like a Cody Ballinger uh, swing. And so he can hit the high fastball because he has that flat swing and he can also hit the low uh, breaking ball because that's just something he ha- he's it's in his tool set. So now he can do what he can. He basically has strengths that line up with what the league is trying to do to him. And I think we'll see more and more Randy O'Reilly types as we see pitchers going up in the zone. And as that happens, then the pitchers will have to go back down in the zone to get those guys out. So, you know, there is this kind of fascinating cat and mouse game. And there's always a tipping point where, you know, things start going back the other way. You wonder if that has something to do with the Dodgers uh, assembling these super sinker guys and Blake Trinan and, and Bruce darger all, but uh, they also have other guys that can climb the climb the ladder on you.
0: What are What are you impressed with with the Rays pitching staff?
2: I really like the 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 variety and stuff, and uh, you know I think Mike Petriello wrote a thing about how they had like this octopus arm slot thing where they just have eight unique arm slots coming out of the bullpen you know, he didn't want to necessarily go in this direction, but I think that there is kind of um, a- like anecdotal, like there's, there's research to suggest that this is meaningful. And I would say that the knuckleball hangover research uh, suggests that uh, one pitch can have, uh, you know, one unique pitch can have effect on the batter uh, on the pit on the batter that comes after, you know, the pitcher that comes after that there can be interactions between pitcher types. That's the, the knuckleball hangover says that pitchers, batters that come, uh, pitchers that come after the knuckleballer do better than you'd expect. And then there's, uh, there's also research that says that, that a good changeup change is good based on the fastball that the pitcher throws. So if a changeup is good based on the fastball that the pitcher throws, maybe the second pitcher is good based on the first pitcher that he replaced. So I think there probably are interaction effects between pitchers like that.
0: That's a lot of cat and mouse uh, to consider as the as the series goes, certainly. <laughs> All right, um, so last week we had Tim Kirkchen on and I asked him if there was a player for whom he gained a greater appreciation for this postseason. He picked Dansby Swanson. Of the two teams left, I feel it's like it's easy to pick a Reina from the Rays or the Dodgers. Uh, I would pick Joey Wendell from the Rays just because he's been so good defensively uh, and he's had a couple of at-bats where he's really battled in key spots even though he has and hit the ball particularly well the last seven eight games. Uh, who's your guy for uh, someone that you've gained a greater appreciation for this postseason?
2: I thought it took a lot of guts for John Curtis just to come out after he gave up a grand slam. You know, just to he had a terrible terrible inning early in this postseason, and then he came out and he pitched well afterwards. And uh, you know, I I saw just the 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 wind. Come out of him when that that Homer left. So that that's one person that um, that stands out for me. I uh, from a sort of you know I thought this was in him and and I told you so kind of way. I think people were sleeping on Corey Seager, you know, like I think they forgot how good he could be. And even when he was good in the regular season, this is a guy who does not strike out and he hits the ball hard and he plays defense well. I mean, he he does everything well. He may not steal thirty bases and may not win an MVP for the season, but he is a quality, quality major leaguer, and he may not even be, you know, the third best player on his team.
0: Right. It's 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 amazing when you think about uh, at the start of his career, people were talking about him as being a potential MVP candidate. Uh, sometimes you have to have a little patience with guys. You have to let them yeah. uh, uh, turn into superstars. All right. couple of predictions. We already, you already said uh, Dodgers in six. Uh, how many four-hour games are we going to get at?
2: Yeah, <laughs> all of them, all of them. I'm writing a piece right now on trends, and uh, this year we had the most bullpen games during the regular season, the most bullpen games in the postseason, and the most pitchers per game used uh, in the postseason. So that I think leads to a lot longer games, as well as uh, having two patient teams at the dish.
0: So six games, four hours of watching the World Series will take a day off your life.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right?
0: All right. Yeah, that's right.
2: We got to 24. <laughs>
0: All right, then who's going to be the best hitter and the best pitcher of the World Series?
2: I'm going to go with uh, Corey Seager uh, as the hitter. And I think for the pitcher, I don't know. Uh, Glass now has two pitches. Uh, Morton hasn't been looking the same. Uh, Snell, uh, would be my candidate on the Rays side, but I think it's going to be somebody like Julio Urias, who's just been pitching really well, has command of all of his pitches, has the velo, and may come into a, a very pivotal sort of game four, game five type situation where what he does will have a, an outsized impact on the series.
0: I was trying to think of a Dodger for whom you, I, I like to pick the under-recognized player but there are no underrecognized players on the Dodgers if i was going to pick cuz i'm with you i'm with you on the six game thing and i want to pick a world series you know like a world series mvp what am i supposed to do pick aj pollock like that that's essentially where i have to go with it right. if i want to go with an underrecognized player uh in terms of best pitcher of the series <clears throat> Walter Bueller had a really great start uh his last time out and i think uh this is yeah. time um, to shine uh so i would i would look for him to come up big
2: apparently his VLO is back a little bit. And, you know, for Walker, I think the the blister just made it so that he didn't have his command when the postseason started. And he's been getting that command by getting reps by pitching in the postseason. You know? so he's, yes. Like, basically, the command has gotten a little better with every appearance.
0: He's, he's worked it out. All right, Eno thank you for taking the time to join us. Enjoy the World Series and enjoy taking a day off your life.
2: <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs>
0: There are so many great defensive players in this World Series. Betts, Kiermaier, Bellinger, Adamus, Wendell, Margot, Renfro, Choi, Phillips, Taylor, Barnes, Zanino, and even Clayton Kershaw. You can read about all of them in our article at blog.com. Appreciate you checking out the podcast this week. For Doug Glanville, Eno Saris, and our producer Justin Stein, I'm Mark Simon. Thank you for listening.
1: Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you
0: like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.